good morning. We've been reading about Gideon lately, and he's, I think, I'm pretty sure my favorite character in the scriptures. Uh, he's one that I've, I've associated with for a very long time in my life. I, I love him and the work that God does through him. And last week we read about how God had chosen to use Gideon as a mighty warrior before he had accomplished any significant feat. He was an individual who was hiding in fear from the Midianite army after God had allowed them to oppress the Israelites for seven years because the Israelites had chosen to do evil in the Lord's sight. And this week, we're going to read how before he goes to liberate Israel from the Midianites, he begins his work at home. And I think this is significant. So Judges chapter 6, verse 25. And so this is after God meets Gideon in the winepress. He now gives Gideon his first mission. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. And so this is absolutely incredible that before he goes to fight the battle with the Midianites that he's most famous for, God has him go to tear down his own father's idols. He has to deal with the sin in his own household first. He has to deal with the issues that he probably sees, the same temptations in his own heart as he sees lived out in his dad's life. He has to address the sins of his father and his community before any of them will be ready to be liberated from the Midianites. And so this was the instruction that God gave. Pull down the altar of Baal, cut down the Asherah pole. These are two pagan deities from that region that God had already warned the Israelites before they entered the land that they could not worship these gods, the gods of the land of the Canaanites uh, that were being sent out before them. That this was significant, that, that if they participated in the worship of these idols, the land itself would spit them out as it did the people who lived there before. And so this sin of idolatry was not merely a sin against God, but it was also treason against neighbor. Because in this nation at this time, as a people sanctified and set apart as holy to God, if they participated in this, this was an act of war against their own nation. This was ensuring the defeat and downfall of their own people. It was bringing about the future exile of their own children. And so this is a big deal at this time and in this nation. It's different than our current and modern experiences today, right? But this is a nation that God had established, that God had set up, and any sort of idolatry like this, God had already made it plain that he was going to cast them out if they fell in to these acts. And in Gideon's life and in his community, this was a regular practice. In, in, in his own family even, 
he saw that there is this sin of idolatry. And so let's see. So Gideon responds to God's instruction. Verse 27. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord commanded. Okay, and so I just want to point out, like, this wasn't like Gideon just getting in his own mind, you know, coming up like, I'm going to go do some, like, religious terrorism sort of guerrilla warfare tactics, right? This was God's explicit instruction to Gideon, okay? So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid. Because he was afraid of the other members of his own household and the people of the town. And and Gideon's uh, perception of his community and his family were well-founded as we see how they respond in a moment. Okay, Uh, He should have greater fear for the Lord than he does for man, but nonetheless, they were not going to be happy about what he was doing. And I want to point out that Gideon, notice, does what the Lord commanded while simultaneously being afraid. And I just want to point out that faith and fear are not necessarily always mutually exclusive of one another. Sometimes God calls us to obey even when we are afraid. That that, that the excuse of having any ounce of fear is not sufficient to be like, well, I guess I'm just not going to obey then. No, no, no. You can still do something that God tells you to do when you're scared to do it that you still can obey God. He's still worthy of that obedience. And so Gideon obeyed God when he was afraid. And so he goes and does this, as God instructed. Verse 28, early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. And so I imagine, based on other trends and patterns in the way that the scriptures describe these sorts of things, I imagine his father may have been the one that set up these altars, but it wasn't simply for their own household worship, that it must have somehow been part of their community worship. Okay, that his father likely had some sort of authority in the town, and that he was the one that had unfortunately led the people to sin. Now, this was at a time when the people of Israel were being oppressed, and they've already begun to cry out to God to rescue them, but they had not walked away from the sin of idolatry. And so, the people wake up, they find the idols cut down and knocked down, and in their place a new altar had been built, and on it the remains of a bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Verse 30, bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. So you can see they, they weren't happy about this. You can understand why Gideon had a little bit of fear in, in doing this. But Joash, now now this is Gideon's father, who was, the the pole belonged to him, the the altar to Baal belonged to him, and now he's at this moment of crisis. Is he going to keep his allegiance to his idols and his foreign gods, or is he going to choose to recognize that his son was right for confronting his own sin? Is he going to side with his son who is aiming to please the Lord 
Or is he going to side with the people of his town that had a very right public opinion and the desire to, to worship these pagan gods rather than be faithful to the God who had rescued their ancestors? And so this is what he says, verse 31. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. And so his dad's now recognizing, like, he's like, I don't even think that Baal is a god. Who knows how and why he got caught up in this adult idolatry, which God does say is adultery, by the way. Uh, and, and, and he's like, he's saying, like, listen, if, if Baal is really a god, then Baal can deal with this problem himself. Right? Baal will address this issue. We don't need to go and defend Baal for him. And so Joash, Gideon's father, in some way must have seen that his son was right or that his son was willing to address the idolatry that he had compromised with, and that the actions of Gideon had brought his father to the point where he had to confront his own sin. That Gideon was bold enough to address it and call it what it was, and, and now Joash, he's like, my son's right. I've grown comfortable with this sin, and my own son is right. This is wrong and idolatry, and I shouldn't be doing it. Now, so the actions of Gideon brought this out. Now, what's interesting is that Baal was unable to defend himself, but Joash, the father of Gideon, was used as one to defend Gideon. That he made an argument before the, the crowd, the, the mob that was ready to kill his son, that he was like, I'm going to come and stand in defense of my son. My son did the right thing, and I have perhaps for years been doing the wrong thing. And Gideon was one who was willing to, for the sake of obeying God, he was willing to offend Baal. He was willing to offend Asherah. He was willing to offend his own father. He was willing to offend his entire town in order to obey God. He was willing to, to put at risk all of those relationships. I mean, Baal and Asherah, not so much, right? Like he didn't believe that they were true gods but he was willing to offend others in order to please the God that had called him to follow him. Verse 32, from then on, Gideon was called Jerub Baal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. Now I want to point out, like we all think about when we think about Gideon, right? The battle with the 300 and, and such a, a minority overthrowing these massive armies, right? That's, that's the story that he's most famous for. But Gideon isn't called the Midian breaker or the overthrower of the oppressors. That's not the name that he gets. The name that he gets is Jerub Baal, the, the name that remembers the moment he confronted his own father's sin. That's what he's remembered for. That I think in God's sight, this was actually perhaps a bigger moment for Gideon, a moment where, yes, just like the battle that we'll read about in future weeks, where here in this moment he is outnumbered. It's his own household that's against him. His, his entire town is against him. He would have felt rather alone in standing up against this idolatry with very few who are willing to go with him 
to obey God, right? But he was willing to offend them. This is the definitive moment for Gideon. And similarly today, right, we must, we must think about this. Are we as believers willing to offend people in our own family, right? Our own friends and relatives, the people in our own town for the sake of pleasing the Lord? Or are we going to choose to, to compromise, to coddle sin, right? To just go along and, and just kind of ignore it and, and make it, make it wishy-washy and just kind of pretend it's not a big deal. Right? Because one of the temptations that we will have, as every generation does, is will we agree with God? Will we believe the truth or will we do the comfortable thing like Joash and worship pagan gods while simultaneously asking the one true God to still help us and rescue us from our oppressors? Right? The danger is, I think, that many, many so-called believers they compromise what the Scriptures say about the sins of others because for years they've already compromised what the Scriptures say about themselves. That they're not willing to deal with their own sin and so they are rightly in no place to speak the truth of the Word of God about the sins of others. They perhaps think about the, the passages and the instruction, the commands of Jesus about the plank in their own eye and the speck in their brother's. And they do obey the part where they don't judge their brother for the speck while they still have the plank. But the thing they disobey, the thing they refuse to do that Jesus teaches, is to actually do the work of pulling the plank out of their eye. Jesus wasn't teaching the idea of like, oh, we'll just, let's just let everyone have their sin. That's not what Jesus wanted. Jesus wants us to address the sin of our fathers. He wants us to address the sin in our own lives, the same temptation that we've seen lived out in our ancestors. He wants us to deal with it. And when we do that, then we are in a place where we can help and love and restore our brothers with the speck in their eye. That if we live as, as compromised Christians, as carnal Christians, as Paul puts it, not only will we ignore our own sin, but we will not be able to obey Jesus' command to help our brother with the speck in their eye. We're choosing to just say, no, I'm going to let my brother forever have this problem because I refuse to deal with my own sin and I'm, I'm not going to deal with theirs. But God instructs us, God calls us to love our brothers in this way. And this is one of the things that Gideon had to be willing to do. That, that we, in the New Testament... We cannot powerfully walk as members in the army of God, accomplishing the mighty works that he's called us to do if we refuse to deal with our sin at home, the sin in our own lives, if we're not willing to deal with our father's sins, if we're not willing to cast down drunkenness and lust and lying and greed, right, pride and selfish ambition, slothfulness, right? Any number of sins that you might struggle with, if we repeatedly ignore those things at home, then we can never go out like Gideon does to rescue the land from oppression. If we choose to live as slaves, we are in no place to rescue anyone. And this is an important work. We must tear down our idols so that we don't leave it to the next generation that we don't leave our paths in our own destruction, 
and then force our kids or the next generation to deal with these problems. We must be willing to be serious to tear down these idols, that we don't put them in the path of danger, that each generation, yes, must fight their own battles, but we must do all we can to liberate slaves of sin. We don't want to pass on a culture of slavery. We don't want to do that. We, don't want, to tr- we want to instead train up the next generation to know and love God. Right, Rook? Sit down. We want the next generation to know how to turn to God in time of need. We want to humbly repent before them and with them and walk them through that process of running to the Father when they need His grace. Right? Think about Jesus and his objective in the song that we sing. That there's no wall he won't kick down, no lie he won't tear down coming after us. And similarly, that's what the work that Gideon is doing. He is willing to tear down lies in order to bring truth and freedom to his friends. Now, this issue, this context is different than our experience today. As I said, this had to do with the sanctification of the people of Israel. Okay, this had to do with a people and a nation that had been called by God with explicit instruction that if they refused to obey or if they turned to the sins of the land, that they would be kicked out. All right, that idolatry in this nation wasn't just sin, it was treason, as I'd said. And so this was a different time in a different context. In the New Testament, I'm quite sure we're not supposed to go out tonight and tear down idols of other false, other religions, right? We're not supposed to go down and and do this sort of guerrilla tactic. That's not what God is calling us to do in this day and age. That instead of going out to make a nation for God, we are to go out into all the nations and make disciples. Okay, The, the objectives between their time period and ours are vastly different. But there are similarities that we must be aware of. Now, what's interesting is at the time of the judges, repeatedly, the phrase is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes in that culture and in that time. That's what Gideon grew up with. And in the book of the judges, there are some of the most horrific accounts of human sin that are recorded anywhere in the rest of the scriptures. That when we are left to our own devices, when we go after our own deceitful desires, it brings about the worst and most destructive communities possible. Right? It might sound like this convenient idea of, yeah, just let everyone do what they want. But this is actually a destructive heresy. It's dangerous that we must instead choose to to crucify our flesh daily. We must choose instead to bring ourselves into submission to Jesus to follow him. That we must instead of doing what's right in our own eyes, do and teach others to do what's right in the eyes of God. Because that's what it said at Judges chapter 6, the very first verse, was the reason they were experiencing oppression for seven years was because they did what was evil in the Lord's sight, rather right, than doing what was right in his sight. They were doing what was right in their own eyes, but that does not line up with what God would speak as truth. And so while Gideon was afraid, he was bold and willing to obey God nonetheless. And so how how does this relate to us? Well, in one way, right, Gideon was dealing with his culture, his community, bringing them to repentance, 
right, dealing with these idols. And the parallel would be not in how we deal with our town or our nation, but how we deal within our church community. That both Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught this idea that if there's unrepentant sin amongst those who profess Christianity, to profess following Jesus, that you need to address it in a certain way. So here's 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I was not talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or are greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols. All right, You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. So notice the instruction that Paul is giving to the church in Corinth. It's not our job to like try to disassociate with the people in the world who aren't Christians. No, we want to pursue them. We want to bring them freedom. We want to proclaim truth and reconciliation. We want to in- invite them to forgiveness and freedom. But what does he say? Verse 11. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it's certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. I, I could add with justification, right, who are practicing sin based on what's written in 1 John. Okay, that those who are in a lifestyle that are living out sin with no sense of remorse or repentance. Right? We all stumble in sin, as James says, James chapter 3. But if I refuse to repent of it over and over and over, like that becomes a problem. And for the, sake, for the sacred sanctity, holiness of the body of Christ, that needs to be addressed. That's the sort of thing that Paul's talking about. So first, verse 13, God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. And even that step takes a long time after you've pursued them one-on-one or with a brother, right, or a sister, right, before it's even brought to that point. The desire is to win your brother, is what Jesus says in Matthew 18. And so there are contexts in which what Gideon does is kind of relevant, where there's a community where we are expected to be living lives as under the Lord, and that it is damaging if that unrepentant sin is left unaddressed. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, this is about ourselves, okay? Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And this is related to idolatry. He says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That God's presence dwells within you. Who lives in you and was given to you by God? And then I love this sentence. You do not belong to yourself. Right? Like, wait, wait, what, Paul? You just said, my body is not my own? Like, you you called me you, but then you said I'm not mine. Like, how does that... Like, how does that work? It feels like a contradiction, but it's true. We don't belong to ourselves. That the moment we've trusted in Jesus, that we have been bought with a price, verse 20. So you must honor God with your body. 
All right, so that moments in which, like we read about Gideon tearing down idols and addressing sin, it's parallel to in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own homes, and in our own churches. But the way that we treat our town or those of false religions, it's, it's a different approach. We're, we're not trying to tear down false religions in that way. But we are trying to seek people out and show them the truth. So, let's keep reading. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, this is how we engage, this is how we invite, this is how we pursue. We don't compromise the truth, but we are bold in the way we proclaim it. So this is the New Living Translation, and I'm going to read both. All right. I like the ESV a lot better for this, but it does have some good, good phrasing. We are human, and we don't wage war as humans do. So New Testament. We're not trying to conquer a land. We're not trying to liberate right from the Midianites. That's not what we're trying to do here. But we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. That's the passage that I really like in the New Living. Right? We remove any stumbling block possible, any any, uh, objection that someone would have to Jesus, that we would reason with them, that we would persuade them, we would expose the lie and bring them to the truth. Right? We want people to know God. That's the goal here. We capture, and this is where it says, their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And after you have become fully obedient, we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. Let's read the ESV. For though we walk in the flesh, right? As Christians, we're not brought into heaven the moment that we're saved. We are left on earth and we have a body that we live out in with its own war against our spirit. And we live this life in obedience to Jesus. We use this body to honor God, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 6. So we we walk in the flesh, but we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. That as, as things come into our lives, lies that the enemy tells us, we don't let him build a fortress in our own thinking. We don't let him take root in our hearts where we become willing slaves of sin or lies. Right? We tear down strongholds. We destroy strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Okay, so that when we engage, whether in our own minds or in conversations with others, we're willing to debate and expose the truth and expose the lie, right? We're willing to have those conversations and we take every thought captive. And this one I think is really helpful for the inward struggle, right? You're going to have thoughts of temptation, but that is something different than sin because even Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. But we do have this responsibility, and God provides a way of escape where we are to take those thoughts captive and bring them into obedience to Christ, and then being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. 
And so one of the reasons I like the ESV a lot better is it more frequently hits the inward battle than it is this external battle with others. And even in using that phrase, I just want us to be careful. We don't battle against flesh and blood. I'm not going to go to Ephesians 6. But we're, we're not opposed to people. They are the ones we're trying to see set free. They are the ones that we love and care for and we want to liberate from slavery to sin. But what we will do is we will not back down or compromise the truth in order to make sin more comfortable. Now, Joash, Gideon's dad, had made this interesting claim about Baal. He said, if Baal is a real god, then why doesn't he defend himself? Let him defend himself. And I just want to like, let us have a moment where, what, what about our God? What about our God? Does God defend himself? And in what way does he have us participate in that? Right? Because like, would the same criticism apply to Jesus or the Father? And in Psalm 74, there was this actual, this, this song is written at the time of the Babylonian exile in which Jerusalem is captured, the temple is destroyed, and Asaph writes this song in which he cries out to God. And he asks this same question, God, why don't you defend yourself? And he's confused. Let's read a little bit of these verses. I'm not hitting all of them. Verse 1. Oh God, why have you rejected us so long? Why is your anger so intense against the sheep of your own pasture? Verse 4. There your enemies shouted their victorious battle cries. There they set up their battle standards. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army coming to take Jerusalem. Verse 7, they burned down your sanctuary to the ground, they defiled the place that bears your name, and then they thought, let's destroy everything, so they burned down all the places where God was worshipped. Right? This is a similar experience to what Gideon just did to Baal and Asherah. Right? Really, really similar. And, and Asaph writes this song and he's crying out to God, he's like, listen, look at what they just did to you, God. Was it his perspective. He says, verse 9, we no longer see your miraculous signs. That is actually a claim that Gideon made in Judges 6. All the prophets are gone and no one can tell us when it will end. Verse 10, this is the heart and the cry that he's saying. How long, O oh God, will you allow our enemies to insult you? Will you let them dishonor your name forever? Why do you hold back your strong right hand? Unleash your powerful fist and destroy them. And so what I want to point out, his question is how long will God allow these things? And when it comes to God defending himself, he allows momentary defeat of Jerusalem, of Israel, of his own temple, and even his own son. And it might look in moments where you're like, God, why aren't you defending yourself? I don't understand. But it all hinges on this question, how long? that God allows momentarily this to occur, but he will eventually rise up and be victorious. Asaph reminds God of who he is, verse 12. He says, You, O God, are my king from ages past, bringing salvation to the earth. You split the sea by your strength and smashed the heads of the sea monsters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan and let the desert animals eat him. I don't have time to get into that, but... Uh, 
Book of Enoch stuff hits a bunch of that, from what I understand. <laughs> you caused the springs and streams to gush forth, and you dried up the rivers that never run dry. Both day and night belong to you. You made the starlight and the sun. You made both summer and winter. And so he's reminding God, like, God, this is who you are. This is who I know you to be. But how long are you going to let them insult you? Verse 18, he's like, God, this is who you are, but look down here with what's going on. See how these enemies insult you, Lord. A foolish nation has dishonored your name. Don't let these wild beasts destroy your turtle doves. Don't let your suffering, your, uh, don't forget your, your suffering people forever. Remember your covenant promises, for the land is full of darkness and violence. Don't let the downtrodden be humiliated again. Instead, let the poor and needy praise your name. And here is the conclusion of his song. Arise, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how these fools insult you all day long. Don't overlook what your enemies have said or their growing uproar. That Asaph, at a time of the destruction of Israel, he's crying out to God, God, why are you letting this happen? Why won't you defend your cause? And God momentarily allows it for justice and judgment of his own sinful people. And he eventually is victorious. And Babylon is overthrown, but it's 70 years later before the people come back to the land. This is similar to the way Peter treats Jesus when Jesus starts telling about his own death. Where Peter is like, Lord, let this never happen to you. Or when Jesus is arrested, Peter takes a sword and, and chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. But when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, this conversation comes up in John 18. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. That Jesus is willing to go to his own death like a sheep Right, going to the slaughter, he's willing to go and experience his death on the cross. He's willing to lay down his life for the lost. And he says, listen, my kingdom's not of this world. Or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, right, our weapons are not carnal. They are not of flesh. Jesus is at war, but he's not trying to overthrow the Roman Empire at this time. He's doing something completely different. And he says, my followers don't need to defend me from being captured. But what, is, what does he do? He says, but my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37, Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And so notice, Jesus didn't come in a militaristic sense in his first coming, but he came to testify of the truth. His kingdom expands by the truth being proclaimed. As people have these strongholds, these lies torn down, right, brought into captivity and into obedience to Jesus, it is the truth that sets people free. That's what Jesus came to do. That his kingdom was not of this world, it's not a conquering kingdom, but we go into the nations to make disciples of all people. Consider this in Acts chapter 17. So this is New Testament example. When Paul enters the city of Athens, and it's full of idols, 
but I want to read just a little bit before that in verse 2. So we can see the way that he defends God and the faith. Verse 2, as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service for three Sabbaths in a row, and he used the scriptures to reason with people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. That the way that Paul engaged with false religion was to teach the truth, to reason, right, to prove, to persuade, to show evidence from the scriptures and the prophecies, to point to the fact that Jesus is Lord. And then in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now, does he pull a Gideon in this moment? Does he go and, like, at night wreck all the idols in the city of Athens? No. Notice what Paul does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Right? He's reasoning. He's speaking. And verse 18 he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And he even told them about Jesus and his resurrection. And so there's this difference between the Christian's approach to pagan idols and Gideon's approach to pagan idols. All right, they all have to be torn down, but the way we do that in the New Testament is we tear down the idols in our own hearts. Right? We, we wreck the strongholds that the enemy would place inside of us. We deal with the sin of our fathers and in our own households. We address sin in our church. And we, with those who are outside, we don't wreck their idols. We expose them as lies. Right? We speak the truth. We engage them. We reason. We debate. We prove. But we don't wreck their statues. Because that's not the way we have to fight here. That's not what we need to do. Here, Everett, let's skip to Jude chapter 1. We'll close on this. Now, there is a moment in which not only pastors, but fam the family of God needs to defend the faith. That this is something that God has us do. And it's not because he can't defend himself, all right? But it's because we are trying to remove any stumbling block that comes between people and knowing God. That's the type of defense that we're doing. Or we're trying to defend the faith within the walls of the church that sin and immorality is not going to be something that is permissive in the life of a follower of Jesus. Okay? So here we go. This is what Jude says. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'm writing not to a pastor, but to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of of Christ Jesus. So this instruction is all who have been called, all who are in the care of Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Verse 3. Here's the command. Here's the instruction. Dear friends, all, all people, family of God, we all have this responsibility. I had eagerly been planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else. So, dear friends, what is he doing? He's urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this, verse 4, because some ungodly people 
have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So notice this, Everett, go back to that verse 3. He urges all of us, friends, those called by God, those in Christ and in His care, all of us are urged to defend the faith. Right? This is a matter of, of understanding the truth. We all play a part in this. We all have a responsibility to do this. And what does this mean? Notice it, it, the faith, the truth that has been entrusted to us by God for once, once and for all time. That the truth, the faith that we've inherited from the Scriptures, from the Apostles, from the Prophets, from Christ, from Moses, from the Father, this wasn't a truth that was quaint and worked maybe in ancient times, in ancient cultures, but is irrelevant today. The faith that we defend is a truth that was for once and all time relevant to the church. This is relevant not to the immoral people and ungodly people, but to God's holy people. That the ways in which we adhere to the faith and defend the faith is in the way that we live, in which we live in defiance to immorality and ungodliness in our own lives. We address the sin in us. And that we are willing to defend the faith right, by keeping to the truth of God's Word that He's preserved for us to grow in. right, The words of truth and life. Because if we alter that, we have no hope to give people. right, We defend the faith by being a people who is godly and holy where we not only have been forgiven by God, but the nature of God, His attributes begin to make their way and express in our lives. That we are a people who bears fruit in keeping with repentance. That we act like the God that we follow. That we act like the Jesus who loves us. And so that's the ways that we are all responsible to defend the faith. Right? We don't tear down idols like Gideon did, but we cast down every wrong argument and philosophy and thought and take it captive to obey Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you seek us out, Lord, that we've lived in a culture that has been steeped in lies, that each of us in every generation, we are sinners by nature and choice, and that we have the tendency, the desire to just live our lives according to our own deceitful desires, to do the things that are right in our own eyes. But your scriptures would warn and teach us, Father, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. And God, you chose to come down and to testify to the truth, to reveal and validate and verify that what you have spoken and the forgiveness that you've offered, the freedom that you give us, are all true. That your resurrection was a way in which, Father God, you defended the words and the work of your Son on this earth. It validates and proves that we have indeed been forgiven, that it is finished. And Father God, I pray that you would equip us with boldness to go out by faith, to Lord be a people of repentance and tear down our own idols, the, the heritage that we've perhaps in, brought in from our ancestors and our fathers, 
that, Lord, we would tear down the sins and the temptation that we see in us, that we would bring it into submission to you, that we would be a people that seek you, that desire to please you, that desire to be a people who are zealous for good works, a holy people, your people. And that, Lord, we would be a people who go out to to reason and talk and discuss and invite and remove any stumbling block that would come between anyone in our community and knowing you who loves them so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.